This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show. I can also welcome you to March. It's March the 2nd. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is the Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions or life questions. If you're going through something, Jesus has the answer. It's in His Word. All you have to do is call us, 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585 if you're outside the local San Antonio area. You can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR, numerically at 630-5757. You can email us your question by emailing questions at calvaryessay.com, or you can send uh, your questions in using our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And if you are driving in your car, using the free KSLR mobile app is the safest way to call. Just hit the Call Now banner, uh, and you'll be able to use your hands-free feature on your phone for the rest of it. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Our main number, one more time, is 340-9585. Hope you had a great day yesterday. Our firstborn, Paul, is in my turned. 47 years old yesterday. We got a chance to talk to him and his wife. Uh, we had birthdays here at the church. And and it was uh, Communion Sunday for us. Hope you had a great day at church. We did yesterday. I have a question from yesterday's message, so I'll get to that in a moment. Uh, but welcome to March. Hope it's a great month, and I hope it's a whole bunch warmer. Um, tonight, here at Calvary Chapel, we have our men's, women's, and youth Bible studies at 7 o'clock. Um, the ladies will be in the sanctuary. You can watch that at calvaryessay.com um, if you um, can't make it here. But we have all of them starting at 7 o'clock, so you can make it a family affair. That is tonight on the program. Let's get to the questions that were sent in. Our first one is the one I mentioned about yesterday's message. It's from John from our email inbox. Uh, he asked, why does the Gospel of, of Luke focus specifically on the two men on the road to Emmaus? Two men who were not apostles, yet back in Jerusalem the same feeling and perhaps emotions were being experienced by the apostles. John, I'm certain that the same feelings and emotions were being experienced by all of the people there. And uh, there's really no reason why the Gospel of Luke uh, focuses, uh, focuses specifically on Cleopas and the other one who uh, whose name that we're not given. Um, all we know is that after uh, Luke, um, after doing eyewitness interviews, um, he thought this story was important. Clearly he was being guided by the Holy Spirit. So we've got uh, two men whose hopes were completely crashed, um, thinking that the one they believed in, they must have been wrong. Um, Luke tells their story. So um, we've got plenty of eyewitness testimony from the apostles in the other Gospels, um, but in Luke's Gospel, the Holy Spirit focused on those two disciples. I like that. Because, well, they weren't really important people. I mean, everybody's important. But relatively speaking, as we think about the apostles and and others in the church, the early church, uh, the apostles were preeminent. The whole book of Acts talks about them. Um, This just goes to show you that Jesus goes out of his way for ordinary people. 
And I like that. Jesus died for people like us. He didn't die just for the apostles. They were people like us uh, before they were empowered by God. So he focuses on them. And uh, we get part of their story. Uh, and Luke is the only gospel writer that gives us any of that information. You know, yesterday in our uh, message here, that's where we were. Uh, we have one more study in the Gospel of Luke, almost two years to get through the Gospel of Luke, and we're about ready to finish next Sunday. Um, but there was so much there. You know, we so often, instead of responding by faith, instead of remembering what God had said in His Word for us, but, but they heard Jesus say it themselves. And yet we let circumstances all around us convince us that something must be wrong. And that's what happened to all of the apostles, those who would be apostles. That's what happened to all of them. They put all of their hope in Jesus. Now they were wondering, well, what's going to happen to me now? And all they had to do was remember the promises of God. He said, I will be handed over to the Gentiles in Jerusalem. And I will be crucified, but on the third day I will rise again. And they didn't hear it. They didn't remember it. So, John, we've got a story about regular people who didn't get it. We've got apostles who didn't get it. And at the same time, uh, Jesus goes out of his way to reveal himself to them. I like that. Yesterday happened to be Communion Sunday here at Calvary Chapel. I mentioned that at the top of the program. And, and we had the opportunity to talk about when, when Jesus handed Cleopas and the other disciple the, the bread. Uh, he pretended like he was going farther. They constrained him to stay. And he handed bread to him. And when he opened his hands, they would have seen the, the wounds in his hands. And that's when they knew that we've been in the presence of God. He is alive. He is risen. What a great, great word that is for all of us. Here's a question that comes from Barbara. I just got this one today. Uh, people seem to be terrified of a coronavirus. What should we as believers say to them? Um, Barbara, I mentioned this also briefly in the message yesterday. Um, Psalm 46. This, read it. I have been distressed a little bit, Barbara. Because so many Christians are giving in to fear. Um, one of my friends was telling me just a little while ago that people are panic buying water and toilet paper and other things at places like Costco and stuff. And I'm just thinking, I hope it's not Christians doing that. Jesus told us not to worry about these things. Now, nobody wants to get sick. I understand that. But why are we so given to fear? Instead of trusting in the Lord, instead of saying, you know, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord, that's what Job said. Should we accept only good and not bad from the Lord? We Christians ought to have a different perspective. We ought to be the people, Barbara, that everybody in the world who's freaking out over this can look at us and say, well, why aren't you freaking out? Why, why aren't you afraid? And the answer is, Jesus, we can tell him that we got the peace of God. Again, I'm not being naive here. Nobody wants to get sick. But at this point in the history of, of this virus, believe me, the flu in this country is a far greater problem than this virus is. So, Barbara, what we need to do is show people that we react like other people react, but in measure and with hope and by faith in a God who has demonstrated his infinite love for us. That's what we celebrated at communion. Why do we forget it when we come up against things that are just a little bit scary? No fear, Christians, no fear. Just trust in the Lord. 340-9585. We'd love your live calls and questions. Toll free if you're outside the local area. is 877-630-KSLR. Here's a question from Regina. And she said, Flat Earth and other conspiracy theories, is there any validity at all 
in them? Regina, the answer is no. And I'm going to be really, really direct on this one. And, and this isn't directed to you personally, Regina. Um, how Christians can believe these things is beyond me. Now, I know what happens. Uh, we, we, we spend time listening to people online or on the radio. Um, we, we are online and we're reading, digging into all these things. How much better would we respond, Regina, if what we were doing was spending that time in the Word of God? I mean, those Christians who profess Christ but also proclaim a flat earth or who dig in with men like Tony Jones and others who would have you believe that we didn't really go to the moon, that 9-11 was an inside job. It's all absurdity. Christians aren't thinking with their minds or their hearts when they fall into these things. And I've really struggled with why these crazy ideas get so much traction. And Regina, this is just me, but I have concluded that there is demonic power in these things. That the enemy is behind him. He's always trying to distract us. He's trying to get our minds and our hearts off of things above, Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 3. That's where they ought to be. He's always trying to get our minds and our hearts here. And if we put too much of our mind on these kinds of silly things, then it's going to influence our heart, and our hearts are going to grow hard. Now, as you all know, I'm a pastor, and I deal with this regularly. It is almost always, Regina, young men, a few women, but not very many, young men, and they spend so much time looking into that which is false that they can't even recognize that which is true. And I believe there is demonic power. I, I really do believe with all of my heart. The, the, the grip I've seen on some of these young men is so staggering that I can only attribute it to the devil, to the enemy. Now, let me be honest, full disclosure, we've had this, Paula and I, in our own home. Not where we live, but our family. And praise the Lord, our son has been delivered from that, at least in large part. But to believe these things is not intelligent, it's not practical. These things aren't important. And we've got a real life story to tell. And Regina, I really do think that the enemy just doesn't want us sharing Jesus. He doesn't want us sharing the truth. I say often that if you reject what is true, you will believe anything else is. And these ridiculous conspiracy theories are proof of it. There is no validity at all if you know somebody, Regina, who is being entrapped by them, you need to get help. They need prayer and a lot of it. So, Regina, that, that topic makes me really sad. Here's a question from Daniel. He says, Pastor Ron, I listened to your study on Daniel 4 where you said that Nebuchadnezzar will be in heaven. How can that be with all the evil he did? Uh, Daniel, the, the reason the same in the Old Testament is in the New Testament. We can't outsend the grace of God. I mean, Daniel chapter 4 is Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. It is written, that, that entire chapter, a little bit of the, of the fifth chapter as well, is written in Aramaic. It's Nebuchadnezzar's own story. And Nebuchadnezzar... Um, God drove him to extreme lengths. But Nebuchadnezzar got to the place where he was at the end of himself. You remember the story? He was made like a cow. He lived out in the grass and his hair, his nails would grow. He just lived like an animal. For seven years, seven 
is significant there. And then he came to his senses. Now the question, I think a better question is, how can he be in heaven? We know God's grace covers all sin. All we have to do is get on our knees and repent and confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Nebuchadnezzar, without knowing Jesus personally, did that. The reason why, I think, is significant. We can tell a lot about Daniel's character in his prophecy. And we know that Daniel was a man of prayer. We know that Daniel prayed even for his enemies, and in this case, for the leader of the people where he lived in Babylon. Daniel and his three friends would have been taken as teenagers, very young teenagers, maybe even before that, 12, 11 years old. And they would have been made to be eunuchs. They would have been castrated because that's the only way pagan kings could trust people in important positions. His whole life, his Jewishness, Nebuchadnezzar tried to steal it all from him, tried to make him a Babylonian. And yet Daniel stayed faithful to the Lord. Now Daniel lived a very long life. Um, he was in Babylon for 70 years and probably was close to 90 years old and remained in Babylon. He never went back. And Daniel prayed for him. He prayed for him continually. He would later pray for the others who came in after Nebuchadnezzar was gone. And God heard his prayers. It's that simple. It's one of the stories in the Bible, Daniel, that I love so much because it demonstrates that if we will be faithful to the Lord, our prayers will be heard. And we all know a bunch of people who are really, really a long way off from God. So Daniel is a great example for us. William says, What happens to us the moment we die? William, this is the subject that I actually talk to people about on their deathbed. When I'm called to go to a hospital or go to somebody's house, um, it's because their time is close. And I tell them, um, after praying for them and asking if they have any questions, I let them know that, that here's exactly what's going to happen. And it's so comforting to them. And I tell them this, when the moment comes, there will be an angel who will be here at your presence. Nobody will be able to see him but you. No matter what condition you're in, he will call the real you, the spirit in this old, tired body. And he'll let you know it's about time. And then instantly he's going to take you into the presence of Jesus. And then I always read Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 10. I said it so many times, I've got it memorized now, but I tell them what to expect. I was people from our church. You know, I tell them, look, I don't want you getting up there and not looking like you know what's going on, so listen very carefully. If they can, they'll laugh a little bit, but I'll tell them, this is what you're going to see. And see a face shining like the sun in all of its glory. You're going to hear a voice call you by a name you've never heard before, but you're going to know it's you. It's a voice that sounds like many rushing waters. You're going to look into those blazing eyes of fire, judgment, and love. And you'll be with the Lord forever. That happens the instant, William, that we die. Well, our phones are quiet, so let me tell a quick story. When my pastor, Chuck Smith, went to be with the Lord, his daughter and his son-in-law was in the room with him at the time. It was 
late in the evening and Pastor Chuck started sort of speaking nonsense a little bit. And they got up to him. Are you okay, Dad? Are you okay, Dad? And he didn't really answer them. But all of a sudden, and he had a deep baritone voice. It was just a great voice. Had so much joy. And he said the last thing they ever heard him say was this. All right. That's what he said. And that would have been the moment when the angel said, it's time, Chuck. It's time. The next words he would have heard after his name would have been, well done, good and faithful servant. So, William, that's what happens. The instant we die, and we will be with the Lord. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Damien asks, since alcohol causes more damage by far than marijuana, won't you consider changing your views on marijuana use? Um, Damien, that's like asking, do you get deader with a big caliber gun than you do a little caliber gun? If you get shot, which does the most damage? Well, you're dead. So what difference does it make? No, I'm not going to change my views on marijuana. You know, Damien, when I get asked questions like this, you already know what's right. And all you want is somebody to say, well, I agree with you. Go ahead. It's not as bad. Alcohol causes more damage by far than marijuana. You're right. And alcohol causes more damage to innocent victims, certainly. With all the drunk driving incidents, the lives that are taken, that's just part of it. But the damage that marijuana does is done to the individual. You're instantly inebriated. At least with alcohol, it takes a few drinks. It damages brain cells, Damien. It distorts your perception of things. Most importantly, God said, don't do it. So how would you address Jesus? Jesus, won't you consider changing your views on marijuana since alcohol causes more damage? Damien, you're not going to get permission to sin from me. You know it's wrong. You know it's sin. If you're a believer, and I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt and assume that you are, but if you're a believer, Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. And he said in his word that we're to be sober and vigilant, not given to drunkenness, whether it's alcohol or marijuana or any other drug. So your choice is to decide who you serve. Do you serve you? Paul said all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. How is being a slave to marijuana? How is it beneficial to your walk with Christ? So Damien, these are the individual decisions you've got to make. And if you make the wrong one, then you're going to stand before Jesus one day and explain to him why you did it. The problem is you're not going to be able to fool yourself then because you're going to know the answer before it comes out of your mouth. It's really important that if you realize you're not your own, you're bought with the price, you'll then offer your body every day to Jesus. Romans 12 tells us to do that. And then you'll be able to be used by the Lord. So do you want to get hired? Do you want to be used by Jesus? That's the choice that you have to make. Damien, I really tire of these questions about marijuana. Like, well, it's a plant, or it just takes the edge off. It helps me relax, or it helps me get to sleep. Do you think Jesus is impotent to do those things? you think it would please him more if you said, Lord, I need your help in getting to sleep. I want to be able to rest, Lord, in you. How would we ever explain to him? 
I know most people don't think about that, but that's what I think about all the time. How would we explain to him why we had to get high every day instead of spending time with him? Damien, I'll tell you one more thing, and then we're getting ready to close this half hour of the program. I can promise you this. If you were faithful in your word, in the Bible, you'd never ask this question. The Lord would speak to your heart so clearly you'd know what pleases him and what doesn't. And smoking marijuana doesn't please him. We have 30 minutes left in the show. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the word to stand in for life. I'll be back in two minutes. Don't have time to call into the word to stand on for life? No problem. If you've got questions, you can email them to Pastor Ron at PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the program. Thank you for tuning in. 340-9585. Here's a question anonymously. Muslims honor Jesus as a prophet. So why wouldn't a Muslim be a true believer? Uh, anonymous, the answer is because uh, Jesus was more than a prophet. He was God. To, to, to ascribe to Jesus the title or the role of a prophet is to demote him. I said that in my message uh, yesterday. The two Emmaus Road disciples said that um, uh, we believed he was the one to, to, to deliver Israel and, and we knew that he was a prophet. No, he was God. Yeah, he was a prophet, but he was so much more than a prophet. So, yes, Muslims think they're honoring Jesus as a prophet, but in actuality, they're demoting him and diminishing his role in salvation. And only God can forgive sins. If Jesus wasn't God, then we're still lost in our sin. Uh, for a long time, several years, I had a caller on this radio program, Alan, my Muslim friend, he would always introduce himself to me. And we had some nice conversations. He was a wonderful guy. Um, but he, he had the same question all the time. He would say, um, you know, but, but we honor Jesus. I said, no, you don't honor Jesus because he is God in human flesh. The important thing for all of us to know, um, we want to introduce you Muslims to Jesus. Just give him the opportunity to change your heart. So I hope that matters. And, and Alan, and you haven't called in a long time, but if you're still listening occasionally, we love you, dear friend, and, and uh, we pray for you still in our home. Here is a question from... What you got? We got a... Anonymous question just typed in. Um, this is an anonymous one. It says, in Luke seventeen twenty one, it says, For behold, the kingdom of God is within you. Is it talking about the Holy Spirit in us? No, because when Jesus says that, remember, anonymous, the Holy Spirit has not been given. So what he's saying is, is he, he, was, he was changing the Jewish perception of the kingdom of God. Now, I think two things here that we have to remember. One is Jesus' ministry was Jewish. It was to Jews. And we try to make it a Gentile ministry, and it just wasn't. Jews believed that the kingdom of God would be something that would happen to them. And Jesus said, no, the kingdom of God is within you. In other words, you've got to let the kingdom of God come inside you. Now, Jews would have understood that. We Gentiles have a hard time, but Jesus was saying, stop looking out. Don't just hang around and wait for God to 
deliver you into the life that you want. No, the kingdom of God is coming to change you inside. And so this is an internal transaction, Anonymous, and and um, so he's not talking about the Holy Spirit. Later that will come, of course, after the, uh, the, the resurrection of Christ and on the day of Pentecost. But of the Spirit of God, we're told he is given to us as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance in heaven. So two different things in view here. To Jesus' audience of Jews, he was talking about, no, no, don't wait for the kingdom of God to take over. The kingdom of God has to come first to you, within you, and then the kingdom of God will come from you. Good question. Thank you very, very much. Here's a question from Sam. He says, Who are the two witnesses from Revelation chapter 11? Sam, those witnesses are Moses and Elijah. Elijah is given to us by name. Uh, We know that um, um, because he is the forerunner of Jesus. So, um, again, the, the Jewish prophet, the prince of prophets, Elijah, um, has to be the one who comes um, before Jesus returns. And we read about his return in Revelation chapter 19. The other one I'm positive is Moses. Moses and Elijah were the two uh, who appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, at the end, uh, Jesus said, The law and the prophets testify of me. Uh, Elijah representing the prophets and Moses representing the law. Uh, So they are the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11. There are some, Sam, who will say that um, it's Enoch and Elijah. um, Just because Enoch also didn't die, he was taken to be with the Lord miraculously. Um, But that's that's an argument that really doesn't have much logic uh, it's clearly Moses. In the end, the people are still going to be condemned by the law. And then Elijah representing the prophets, his message is going to be about Jesus. So that's who the two witnesses are. Sherry says, Pastor Ron, I was debating with somebody online about the temple um, he said would be built during the Great Tribulation. I say that all prophecy has been fulfilled already and there's no need for a temple again. Sherry, um, he's right, you're wrong. Um, You have been reading or listening to um, somebody who holds a preterist view. Um, Their view is that all prophecy was fulfilled in 70 AD, which makes absolutely no sense at all to to come to that conclusion. You have to allegorize so much of end times prophecy, not just in Revelation, but in the, the Old Testament as well. Um, there is going to be a temple. David is going to, I mean, uh, Jesus is going to rule and reign from the throne of David in a rebuilt Jerusalem for a thousand years. And certainly that hasn't been fulfilled. Jesus' second coming hasn't been fulfilled. All of those things and so many more to say that all prophecy was fulfilled in 70 AD is to put your head in the sand and and just ignore everything around you. I can tell you prophecy that's coming true even as we live right now. Second Timothy chapter 3. Timothy, mark this. In the last days there will be perilous times. And then he goes on to describe those times. All you have to do is look around. I was looking at the news feed today um, while I was eating lunch and um, on, online and and um, I saw three stories about mothers who are under arrest for the disappearance, and in one case, the murder, uh, a child's body they found, of their children. And these are young women. One of the signs at the time that we live in these last days is that we will be without natural affection. That Greek phrase describes the love a mother has for their child. Well, our world is is in in this very day without that love in a lot of instances. Things that we never would have imagined even possible in the heart of a mother. Those things are happening. That's just one view. 
people be lovers of themselves rather than lovers of God? Have you been to a gay pride parade or watched one on the news? They hate God. So these are just prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled, Sherry. So I would really ask you to study a little bit more diligently, to use the brain that the Lord has given you. You cannot practically or logically conclude that all prophecy has been fulfilled. Read Daniel chapter 9. That hasn't been fulfilled. Much of Jeremiah, the promises to him, to Isaiah, the prophet Joel, those prophecies have not been fulfilled. And so either all prophecy has been fulfilled or it hasn't. There's still much to yet to be fulfilled and, and you can't have it both ways. So Sherry, I hope that uh, will spark a little bit of curiosity and, and study. Thank you. Let's go to our first phone call today. Line one, Mark from San Antonio. Mark, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Yes, hello, Ron. Uh, basically, this is an apologetic-type question. It involves a Christian brother uh, that I've gotten kind of a little debate with regarding the inerrancy of God's Word. He has said basically he has no problem with the New Testament, but in the Old Testament he has a big problem uh, with um, like certain uh, stories or passages regarding God's judgment on uh, innocent children or, or just uh, the killing of animals uh, or just uh, like slavery and the, and the law or in that one situation against um, uh, uh, these youth who uh, called uh, Elisha Baldy and they were mauled by a bear. How my friend, my brother, saying, how could a perfect God issue these harsh judgments on innocent people or exaggerate the judgments on these people? You know, and he would, yeah. he would call it in the name of discernment. Not, I would counter with, don't you think you're kind of attacking God and his word and not letting God be God? But he would say all in the, <laughs> all in the uh, reasoning of discernment whether parts of God's word is actually God's word or not. Uh, yeah. I've given verses out of Psalm 19, 119, uh, Proverbs 30, uh, the, the uh, story of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, you know, in the uh, part where he said, you know, when he was delivered from his affliction, you know, being a wild animal or whatever, he would say, why don't we, uh, uh, why, who, who are we to tell God what he is about or who are we to tell God what to do? Things like that. Isaiah 55, I've told him God's ways are not our ways. Uh, that's it. I'm out. Okay. Thank you, Mark. Uh, those are those are very familiar questions. His problem, first of all, God didn't exaggerate the stories. You use the word exaggerate, and, and, and he's indicating, I think, that well, well, God's word can't be true in the Old Testament because those stories are exaggerated. They're not exaggerated. Those are, are stories with historical validation and, and um, have been a part of the Jewish canon um, from the very beginning. So that's the first thing. God didn't exaggerate. The second thing I, I would do now, and, and this is just somebody who's reasonable and wants to talk, um, I would ask him to, to turn to Revelation chapter 19. Do you think that's unkind? Do you think that's cruel? That's Jesus coming back and with a word destroying his enemies. And so great will be the carnage that all of the birds from all the earth are going to have to come and clean up the mess. Do you think that's exaggerated? Do you think that's unkind or unloving? The answer is probably going to be no, because, well, when Jesus comes, he's going to come in perfect judgment. Well, in those stories where, where Joshua, for example, is ordered to destroy every living thing, animals too, it's a cleansing, it's judgment of God. These are men and women who have been given chance after chance after chance to repent. We've got the story of Jonah where the Ninevites, who did horrible things and who would later do more horrible things, God sent a prophet to warn them and they repented. He gave them a chance. Well, in the case of, of the, the Canaan campaign, um, those people had more than 400 years to repent. From the time God led the people 
out of Egypt. They saw the power of God. They heard the stories about God. They refused to repent. The Amorites, God said, had more than 400 years and they refused. And only God, Mark, knows when the sin quotient is full. And in their case, the sin quotient was full. This is the perfect judgment of God. And judgment is all and only about death. Finally, think about this. Think about the grace. Always look for grace. Even in the judgment of God. And if God declared that every man, woman, and child was to be destroyed, the men, the women, not innocent, they're, they're sinners, they're guilty, they rejected God, they live horrible lives. Well, they deserve it. You might think, what about the innocent children? Well, those innocent children would grow up to be judged by God. And so in the, the death of children, he spared those who were not yet accountable. Remember in Jonah's prophecy, Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. And, and God said, I've got 120,000 in Nineveh who don't know their right hand from their left. These were young people who were unaccountable. And those unaccountable children who died would be those who went to paradise and later led by Jesus into heaven. So he spared them eternal punishment. Yes, they were judged temporally. But he spared them eternal punishment. And when we get to heaven, we're going to meet some of those kids. And we're going to find out in their glorified, physical, resurrected bodies now, they have no problem at all. Mark, that's very important. So um, I would really make him take a long look at Revelation chapter 19. Because if, if the judgment in Canaan, led by Joshua, it was a seven-year campaign. If that judgment was unfair, then... Uh, unjust, and so too is the judgment in Revelation chapter 19. It's not an Old Testament thing, it's a Jesus thing. Good question, Mark. Thank you. Let's go to Jim holding on line two. Jim, thanks for being patient. You're on the air. Thank you, Pastor Ron. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you well. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Uh, first, thank you for the explanation of what happens when uh, committed born-again Christians die. That's wonderful. Mm -hmm. I guess the part of it is the the concept of purgatory is kind of a Catholic uh, myth, and I'm yes. assuming. And then, then, then there's one other. I'd like to add one other question if you wanted to expand on that. But real quickly, okay. studying, studying the Lord's Prayer, when you get to um, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, you know, Jesus is saying, is, is it possible that, I thought that the devil led us into temptation more than <laughs> God would. So I just, you know, it's just kind of random, but I thought I'd run that by you. Thank you, Jim. I love the second question. I'll take some time with that. But the, but the first question, um, yeah, the, the answer is yes. Purgatory is a myth. Um, uh, there's no substance, uh, no truth. No second chance. We can't get prayed out. We can't have people give alms and, and, and the Catholic Church, you know, give us a second chance. Uh, it's appointed unto man once to die and then face the judgment, Hebrews 9.27 says. So the, the, the whole concept of purgatory is, is not only a lie, but it's evil. It's purely evil when the Bible says something else. Um, the, the question about the Lord's Prayer. You, you know, um, I remember um, it's been, uh, I don't know, 20 years now, uh, the first time I taught the Lord's Prayer here at Calvary Chapel. And Mark, it, it or I'm sorry, Jim, it, it radicalized my prayer life. Um, you know, it's a model for prayer. Uh, it's not a prayer that is to be repeated and just over and over and over um, you know, uh, our Father. It's not that kind of prayer at all. It's a prayer that's sort of outlined. It's, it's like um, um, the, the bones, and then when you really dig in, you find out there's so much meat on those bones. And when we get to the place where it says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. 
The idea is simply this. It's not that Jesus would ever lead us into evil, but what he's saying is this. And remember, this isn't Jesus talking. He's telling us how we should pray. So it's like me saying, Father, lead me, or I want to follow you. Because when you're leading, when I'm following, I know I'm going to go in the opposite direction of temptation. The enemy, temptation, the flesh is on the other side. But if I stay close to you, I'm going to be walking with you in the safe place, in the opposite direction of temptation. So it's saying, lead me. And I personalize this. I take the us and change it to me. Lead me, not into temptation. But I want to go the opposite direction. Deliver us from evil. And the, 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 the prayer is simple. I say it all the time on this program. I say it even more at church. Just be with Jesus and you're going to be going in the opposite direction of evil. So that's the idea of the prayer. We might say, lead us, comma, not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. As you are leading us away from evil, we're walking with Jesus in the same place. I love that. Thank you very, very much. A question just was sent in, maybe. Uh, it was from a Catholic who didn't like my answer about purgatory. Uh, anonymous in Luke 23, verse 43, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. What did Jesus mean by that statement? Well, Anonymous, all you have to do is turn to Luke chapter 16, and you're going to see exactly what Jesus meant by that statement. Paradise was a place. Luke chapter 16, we find the, the story. It's not a parable. It's a real story of the rich man and Lazarus, the beggar, who died on the same day. They're, they're, they were called to account for their lives the same day. Uh, the rich man who was harsh and selfish uh, was in a place of torment. Lazarus, uh, the poor beggar, he was in paradise, or it's also called Abraham's bosom, in the abyss. So we got two compartments. Um, Abraham said in that story that um, the, the compartments, there was a big gulch between them, and no one could cross over from one side to the other um, uh, when, when the rich man asked for help. Well, at least go tell my, my brothers. No, um, they had their opportunity. They wouldn't even believe it if a man was, would raise from the dead. So what we've got is two compartments, paradise. Father Abraham was the spokesman there. That's where all of the believers who, who died before Jesus was born, before he was crucified and risen from the dead, that's where they went. It was a great place. But the other side was this place of torment. Now when Jesus died, he descended into the lower parts of the earth. Peter tells us that he preached a victory proclamation to those spirits who were disobedient. In other words, he went down, he declared victory over death to those who were disobedient, those who were in torment. And he led, Paul says in Ephesians 4, he led captivity, those who were in paradise, he led them to heaven. Remember when he said to Mary Magdalene, don't cling to me. I've not yet ascended to your father and my father. Well, he first had to go down into paradise and he emptied that compartment and he took those people to heaven with him and they were set free, literally set free. And as wonderful as paradise was, it's nothing compared to heaven. So that's what that means, uh, Anonymous. It just means uh, Jesus um, told the thief on the cross today, you and I will be together in paradise. That is not purgatory. Here's another anonymous question. It was just called in. Did God create man before or after the devil left and or kicked out of heaven? Um, we, we don't know for sure. I have very strong feelings, anonymous. I believe with all of my heart. In fact, I just taught on this, and I'll be teaching it again when we get to Genesis chapter 3. Uh, I believe that God created man and uh, at that particular time, the sixth day, um, the um, devil was still Lucifer the angel and the angels hadn't fallen yet. 
And I believe that the reason Lucifer, who is God's most beautiful creation, Ezekiel chapter 28, especially if you read the poetic King James, has a, a wonderful description. You almost hear the music emanating as he raises his wings. Um, I think up to that time, Lucifer was the most beautiful thing God ever did. When he saw man and God said, no, 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 this is very good. I think that was the jealousy that God used to give Lucifer and all of the other angels a choice. And so I think the fall uh, of the angels happened uh, very shortly after uh, the creation of man on the sixth day. I think they saw, Lucifer did, how enthralled God was with his creation. Ephesians 2.10 says that, that when God made us anonymous, when he made you and me, it was the best thing he ever did, and that's when Satan rebelled. So, um doesn't say that in the Bible, but I think there's lots of inferences to that um, in particular. So, uh, that's my position. I'm sticking to it. Uh, it's the only thing to me that makes sense. Good questions. Thank you for tuning in today. This has been the Monday edition of The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. If you're interested and can make it, remember our men's, women's, and youth Bible studies tonight at 7 o'clock. You'd be more than welcome. May the Lord bless you and keep you. I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. See you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.